0: Welcome to episode 85 of the Infectious Historian's podcast. I'm Merle. And I'm Lee. It's January 20th, 2022. And today we're going to discuss a topic that we've talked about throughout this podcast, disparities in who gets infected and dies during a pandemic, with a focus on racial disparities in this episode in particular. Our guest today is Keith Wailu, who's the Henry Putnam Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University. In addition to various other roles over the course of his illustrious career, Keith is the current president of the American Association for the History of Medicine, which is the preeminent society and organization for the history of medicine in the world, and last year received the prestigious Dan David Prize from your country, Lee, for his work on race, science, and health equity, and was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences.
1: Keith is the author of seven books on various topics, and I'll mention just a few. So Dying in the City of the Blues, Sickle Cell Anemia and the Politics of Race and Health in 2001, The Troubled Dream of Genetic Medicine, Ethnicity and Innovation in Tysax, Cystic Fibrosis and Sickle Cell Disease, Pain, A Political History, and just this last year Pushing Cool, Big Tobacco, Racial Marketing, and the Untold Story of the Mental Cigarette. Keith has also published extensively in health policy venues, such as the New England Journal of Medicine, to engage with that discipline using historical research, and has written for a wide variety of other public venues, such as the New York Times. And of course, it's always great to have a Princeton person on the podcast. So hi, Keith. Hello, great uh, great to join you.
0: So we could think of no one better than Keith to have on this episode, And Lee, you and I have returned to this question of disparities and who gets sick and dies during a pandemic throughout the last, now, almost two years. It seems that those who have the least, to be as general as possible, are impacted the most during most, perhaps you might even say, all diseases and pandemics we have discussed on this podcast. All types of writers on the public to academic scale, however you want to think about this, have discussed this, it seems to me, during covid particularly as racial disparities, and this is something we had a few early episodes on as early as April 2020 have discussed, and throughout the last almost two years. But what I don't think we've done, Lee, is to think about these outcomes systematically and historically, and as a script, we might say, in and of themselves. That's what I hope to discuss with Keith today. What is unique about COVID and what is not? How do the stories we have internalized play a role in this process?
1: Right, and maybe to follow up, or maybe in parallel. So there's also the issue that, that again, came up early in our podcast in the same episodes you've mentioned, Merle, eh, which is the idea, the notion that these various disparities, whether we want to talk about social or economic or racial or any other type of disparities, have been known to have had an impact on sickness and mortality much before COVID as well. So in this sense, COVID has really reconfirmed a known paradigm. And yet at the beginning of COVID, this was still portrayed as, and maybe also perceived as news. And here we are almost two years in, and at least from my perspective, not much has changed for the better, at least. So I'm looking forward to reflecting a bit more on the discourse surrounding these disparities and how that continues to influence us today. But before we begin the interview with Keith Merle, uh, how are you? I know that the end of our taping last time was let's say, as interesting?
0: Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, Lee. I think five minutes after we stopped the recording, I got a message that some friends, one of their kids had just tested positive and we had just been with them actually all morning outside. And it turned out that all four members of their family got COVID. And thankfully so far, all four of ours have not following a whole series of rapid tests and PCR tests for all of us. We did lose, you know, 10 days, which meant six more days without school for our kids. So that was a month straight of having the kids at home, which, as you know, Lee, is a lot of fun. And they're actually home again today because there was quote unquote snow here in Maryland. So, you know, that's another day they've been at home.
1: Yeah, actually, I can say that today as well. We had no snow, but we still lost a couple of hours. We had a delayed opening because people were afraid that there might be snow and they wouldn't know how to deal with it. So the easy solution is, of course, to just delay opening. Yeah, no, that's a really good point.
0: And the whole process, as you know, now, Lou, with kids is nerve wracking because you sit there each day, rapid testing the kids and then setting up a PCR test, which my daughter strangely enjoys. But my son, you have to hold his head and hold his whole body to put the thing up his nose. And he doesn't really appreciate that very much. But what's really kind of crazy about the whole thing, thinking back on it, is we spent a lot of time with this other family last week or the week before, I guess. And the only reason why we probably didn't get COVID is because the morning in which one of the kids was sick, we were outside and they'd invited us inside to play with the kids afterwards. And we didn't do it only because my kids were in full snow gear, right? Boots, hat, jacket, you know, snow pants. And You probably don't appreciate this, Lee, but getting little children in and out of full snow gear and then back into it is probably the biggest pain in the ass known to mankind. Mm -hmm. And thus, my kids, we didn't go inside the house because I just didn't want to do that, take it all off and put it back on to walk down the street. And that's probably the reason why we all didn't get COVID in the end, which is kind of crazy to think about. And also, I should say a plug for why I tell my wife I want to move to Arizona um, Mm -hmm. every winter. (laughs) But, you know. That's a plug for Arizona, I suppose. She always tells me no. And what about you, Lee? Have things peaked in Israel yet? Or are you still in the midst of this current wave?
1: Yeah, I think we're still going up. Uh, last I heard, we had 70,000 cases per day, which is seven times more than the highest we've had before Omicron. There are many people, much more around us that we've noticed earlier on, several family members on both my side and my partner's side, close family members are sick now. And we of course hope that they'll get better as quickly as possible. So yes, COVID is definitely much more noticeable. I guess on the more positive side, I could say that our daughter is still going to daycare and has not lost even one day. All the other classes in daycare kind of like are closing around us. But after the previous waves of covid where we were kind of like the first to be sent home this time or for whatever reason we're still going strong and bigger
0: well that's a win have they changed the quarantine isolation regulations like they did in the u.s where they kind of basically massage stuff to some extent in recognition that too many people
1: were going to be out So funny that you're asking that, Merle, because just before we started this recording, I saw that they're going to change the guidelines pretty substantially next week. So beginning in a week or so from today, children who have been in contact with someone with COVID will not have to isolate if they don't have symptoms. The government is recommending that parents will not send sick children to schools or daycares. But yeah, I, I think they've more or less given up on trying to control this. And the reason is that they, we, I guess, tried to continue living through COVID without interrupting too much. But time and again, you hear all these stories about classes with like three kids or four kids and then because 20 kids are currently isolating at home, maybe also with COVID. So yes, things are definitely changing now and I hope it's for the better. But uh, it'll take another week or two at least before we can really know. But what about you, Keith? I assume you're at Princeton. So how are things over there now?
2: Things are just past their peak in terms of the Omicron variants' kind of effect on the population in New Jersey. Uh, so we're in the Northeast US, which is experienced a recent peak and also a decline And so we're kind of past the high point of something like, uh, I think it was about got as high as 30,000 new cases a day in New Jersey. And now it's down to about 10,000, which to put it in perspective, that was the high point was about a week ago. We're now down significantly, but being down to 10,000 puts us at the peak of what the Delta variant was producing. So that puts things in perspective in terms of the rate and the number of cases. And hospitalizations are still rising. So it's not clear, despite the fact that Omicron is far less severe clinically, it's not clear exactly what impact that will have in terms of hospitalization and mortality eventually when this particular chapter plays itself out.
0: and Is the plan to have basically normal university operations in terms of teaching, at least? We're
2: one week out from the start of classes. Students have been trickling back to campus, but my general sense is that students are waiting until this coming weekend to arrive. And the university is going to be doing a kind of rapid assessment Right When you have that kind of movement of population from all over the country and world into the university, the university likes to think of itself as creating a bubble. But of course, that's not going to be the case in the first week or two. So I think we're all prepared for massive uncertainty in the first two weeks of classes, which means that we will be going into the class, but we also are being asked to make contingency plans to accommodate students who are quarantining. Uh, so it's it's uncharted territory, and that's saying something, given the fact that we have two years of experience with this. So one of the things I like to say about COVID when I talk about it is that you know it teaches us that an epidemic is not just variable, across the world, and in our case, the United States, across the states, but it's also variable across time. That is to say, Omicron is different from Delta, and Delta is different from Alpha, and 2020 is different from 2021, and we're just entering what I would call the third chapter, and we'll be lucky, and we'll be fortunate, and we'll be extraordinarily happy if the third chapter is if not the last one, then maybe the penultimate chapter. Maybe though we're in the middle of this story. Hard to tell, right? Historians aren't futurists.
1: Yeah, that is definitely one of the points that have been repeated in this podcast. None of us or our guests really likes making predictions. But if I may ask, what are the first two chapters? I mean, how would you define the first two chapters if this, I guess, Omicron is the third one?
2: So I think in terms of both years, I mean, that's the convenient way to think about it, right? Literally, this we are entering year three. Uh, the shutdown in the U.S. context happened around March 2020. But we had begun to hear about this thing bubbling up from Wuhan and in China right about now, right? And wondering what would happen. So I would say the first chapter is one in which, you know, you have a society that's grappling with the first manifestations of it. So you have the story of like New York and New Jersey being hit dramatically hard and the rest of the country in the United States wondering, will we be spared? Is this just a kind of a dense population phenomenon? And as a result, what kinds of approaches? And of course, we had a president who was ready to declare the pandemic was over before it had even begun. And you have, you're have you entering a highly politicized year. It's an election year as well. So my thinking is that that's one chapter. And the next chapter really is driven by the rise of the, the vaccine and the politics of who is vaccinated, who isn't, uh, and the politics of prevention that's layered atop the history of masks but then you also have a new variant the delta variant that shows up in the middle of that so when i say chapter 3 what i mean is like we have 2 years of experience but now we have you know booster shots we have a world population that is more vaccinated and then we have this surprisingly highly transmissible and also clinically less severe omicron variant and we're watching to see, one, how it plays out across the world, but what it will mean for the toll and also how it will lay the groundwork for what happens next. So I just think it's useful to compartmentalize and think about you know, really three epidemics, uh, maybe four, each of which has a different biological, social, political dynamic and global dynamic as well.
0: That's a really neat way to put it in a much better way. I know not to use Lee's favorite term, which are waves, because that obviously carries with it a whole series of problems, both analytically and also isn't really necessarily precise enough. So I think that's a, a nicer way to formulate it. I wonder if, you know, turning to some more specifics on this, we can use this as a good segue into, you know, the more formal part of the interview, which is, Does some of these ideas that you're framing them as chapters, does this come out of, you know, Charles Rosenberg famously wrote about, you know, epidemics following similar paths and patterns, right? Which he called acts. Could you first maybe give our listeners some background on kind of that famous framework that he set up and kind of how it works?
2: Sure. So uh, Charles Rosenberg is a really leading historian of medicine, American medicine, whose book the cholera years, published in 1962, it's still considered a standard in the field, an early work on epidemics and society and social change. And, um, you know, I think what's interesting about that book is that it explored the interplay of religious meaning associated with new pandemic of cholera that struck American society in 1832, and the way in which Americans drew upon a script that's deeply rooted in Christian thinking about, you know, the punishment of God for the sins of man. And so what he was interested in is how society moved from that to a more secular approach to interpreting a pandemic as maybe a judgment on poverty, and also ultimately the role of science, the role of a metropolitan board of health. And along the way, you know, you have people who were thinking about epidemics as more of an economic disruption. And so the business classes. And so what he did in that book is to kind of open up a conversation that in some ways, the entire field of history of medicine started to develop. But also, it's a story that we're living in. (laughs) All of the features that he described are the kinds of experiences we have today. And so when HIV-AIDS became pandemic in the 1980s, his book was republished. And then in the context of that, he's since published a collection called Explaining Epidemics. But in 1989, he published a piece in Daedalus called What is an Epidemic? AIDS in Historical Perspective, where he laid out a kind of a dramaturgical understanding of the kinds of social narrative that often greets the emergence of new feared waves of epidemic mortality, progressive revelation being act one, act two being the management of randomness. Act three being the negotiation of public response. And so he suggested that, you know, whenever you have pandemics, there is a dramaturgical social process that plays itself out. Uh, and that way of thinking in a narrative sense about what the scripts are has been very helpful for historians in understanding epidemics in the past. And it's also been very helpful for in terms of my own thinking, thinking about what kind of narratives are we telling ourselves about COVID as it plays out. Now, I should also point out that Charles Rosenberg was my dissertation advisor, right? So it's not a total coincidence that I actually think that these insights are important and still resonant today. And they've certainly informed my work.
0: Yeah, I have to say, I've taught both portions of the cholera book and obviously the article since covid and the first thing all the students say when i you know just open the floor even cuz i was curious what they would say before i even shaped the questions and they all said this is basically the same thing as we've all been doing <laughs> um, and i had read it years before and read it during covid and i went oh this again speaks
1: much more urgently to the time so maybe to stay on this point a little more so when you talk about it the script or the narrative of an epidemic and these stages do these stages have to happen sequentially or can
2: they happen in parallel as well? So, I have always taken Charles's dramaturgical invitation as a kind of a flexible way of understanding social response. And, you know, as we've just described in COVID, you could have one area of the country or the world in a period of trying to figure out the meaning of this, while another area of the world is managing randomness. So I would say it's not necessary that the acts of this drama play themselves out sequentially. But I think what's helpful about the model is to try to understand that there are these frequent patterns that help to explain how a society both sort of socially and psychologically and politically, comes to terms with this new phenomenon. And you
1: suggested in your work that race and racialization really play a key role in these narratives. So maybe can you first tell us what you mean by
2: that, and then we can dive deeper in. That's a great question. So I should give you a sense of the context. So because Rosenberg's work continues to be so important in the history of medicine field, in 2020, in the midst of COVID playing itself out, the Bulletin of the History of Medicine decided that they would invite authors to reflect on the continuing importance of this essay but from an awareness that much had changed since 1989 when the essay was first published. And that reflection prompted me to write an essay that really focused on the fact that the scholarship had spent a great deal of time in the subsequent years reflecting on how ideas about ethnic, racial, social group difference play a significant role in the dramaturgy of epidemics. And so in a nutshell, what I argued is that there is a kind of recurring racial script about bodies and identities and racial difference that one sees playing out historically, but also in COVID, in which revelation certainly is the first step. But there's a particular kind of racial revelation when societies ask questions about whether different groups are experiencing the effects of an epidemic differently, whether it's HIV AIDS, in the case of an influenza pandemic and cholera, and many of the questions that rise to the surface have to do with African American differences. And then there's a period of what I call staging of bodies and places in which there's a deeper investigation of whether any disparities that might exist along lines of race and ethnicity, how can they be understood in terms of differences in bodies or differences in the places that these groups live and exist. And often there's a lot of public commentary about that. So maybe as a follow-up, if I understand correctly,
1: it is the mainstream or majority or hegemonic, I mean, pick your word, group that looks at other groups, maybe racial minorities in this case, and has these revelations about how those other groups are dealing with an epidemic. Is the notion that these other groups are supposed to be doing worse than the majority group, however we would like to define them?
2: That's a wonderful question. I, I think that in a society that has preexisting ideas about difference, one of the first steps, I argue, is to use that preexisting idea to ask the very question that you asked. That is to say, is there a difference along lines in the United States, let's say, of race. And and the findings can cut in any number of directions, but they're always regarded as noteworthy, right? So one of the things I think is interesting is that it's rarely the case that somebody says, it's not even a question worth asking. Usually they say, what kinds of differences are we finding, for instance, with black folks? And in some epidemics, the one example I think is fascinating is that in the influenza pandemic in 1918, 1919, so important was the script, the need to ask that question, that you find some cities where the authorities say, obviously, African-Americans are experiencing worse rates of influenza. And then in other cities, you have authorities saying, actually, African-Americans are doing faring better with influenza and we don't know why. And then you have other cities who say, you know, there are lots of theories about African-Americans doing worse or better. And we find that it's the same, (laughs) right? And the point being that there is a kind of a built-in need to ask this question. The findings can go in any number of directions, but what's interesting is even if the findings, for instance, in yellow fever, or that African-Americans were, quote, um, immune. That leads to a certain set of decisions like putting Black folks to work, cleaning the streets, or taking care of uh, yellow fever sufferers, even if in time it turns out that it's not true. So this first stage of even asking the question is consequential, not because the findings are Blacks are immune or Blacks are more susceptible. It's just to call out race as a significant uh, feature of an epidemic that is then actionable in some way. And that's a recurring theme in the American uh, dramaturgy of epidemics.
1: So if I understand correctly, epidemics can highlight specific groups, groups that We've discussed earlier that that we know we have uh, some preconceptions about what these groups are, who these are, what is our relationship between us, however we define us, mm-hmm. and them. I accept that. I see that uh, both in COVID, of course, and in the previous uh, epidemics, pandemics, diseases that we've covered. My question here is whether we're seeing something that's maybe a bit new in the context of COVID, right? Because in COVID, one of the things that's happening here at least, and I think it also is is, is going on in the US as far as I understand, is that there are new groups being defined in a sense. And I'm thinking here specifically about vaccinated versus unvaccinated people, mm-hmm. right? So there is discourse defining a group of vaccinated people and those people are supposed now to have certain characteristics, certain features. They are supposed to fall in a specific cultural group. And there's the unvaccinated group who are supposed to be something else. And this drama, to, to, mm-hmm. to use your terms, how common is that?
2: So that's a great question. What I would say is that the the narrative you're describing is one in which the, the epidemic itself produces difference. So it's not just that there are pre-existing differences that are used to read the significance or the character of an epidemic, but the response itself produces differences and actually creates a different set of narratives about difference. So a good example is in the US, we have the emergence of a character of somebody called an essential worker Right? And the essential worker is the person who, as a matter of public policy, is someone who doesn't have the luxury that you and I did for much of the pandemic, which is to work remotely. Uh, they also were seen as disproportionately vulnerable. right, And as a result, they are understood as performing a particular kind of work that's particularly valuable. The difference between the vaccinated and unvaccinated emerges after, of course, you have to produce vaccines. And then you start to observe differences in outcome. And of course, the unvaccinated are also a political class, right? There's an ideology perspective, and it's not just about science. It's about, in the U.S., partisanship. Now, it turns out that in the U.S., there is a marriage between the vaccinated and the issue of race. So going into this last, let's say six months, one of the arguments in the US was that African Americans and Latinos were less likely to be vaccinated because of mistrust of science, government, et cetera. As it turns out that that gap has shrunk dramatically over the course of the last six months. And one of the reasons it shrunk is because of the highly partisan anti-vaccination mentality on the part of white Americans who are disproportionately white Republicans in particular. So there's an interesting narrative about vaccination identity that intersects with racial politics in the United States. And so you might say it's a story of how the vaccine is both playing into ideas about race and difference, but also producing new dynamics with regard to race and difference in American politics. So along these lines,
0: you mentioned at the end of one of your earlier answers that some of your thinking holds for the United States. If I were to broaden the lens either farther back in time or broader around the world do some of these categories change right i'm tr- just thinking of you know we might have broader differences between class for example would be the the obvious one so would some of these dynamics you think that you've suggested play out similarly just along different types of you know less fortunate groups for lack of a better catch all term
2: Well, I think that wherever you are in the world, there are these social differences that are defined by issues of work and class, education, social location, and broader issues of religious ideology. And one might say, kind of, you know, the partisanship more generally. And it is unquestionable that the politics of COVID in particular, um, has played out in every geographical location in the world, informed by these dynamics. It's unquestionable that, for instance, in societies where there's a kind of religious set of attitudes about COVID and its approach, much like what Charles Rosenberg wrote in the Calibre years, where um, ideas of, the church as the locus of authority for interpreting the meaning of a pandemic and also guiding its followers in terms of proper response unquestionably where those views conflict with the views of scientifically trained public health authorities and where those two views come into conflict with the economic interests of those who wish to keep society's commerce flowing, regardless of what the social costs are, you're going to see this kind of tension play out. And then every society has a set of classes of people who are regarded as ethnic, religious, social minorities, who may exist and be working in spaces that put them at increased vulnerability, where the society has to ask these kinds of questions about what explains differential vulnerability, how much of that differential vulnerability is rooted in some biological story about who those people are, and how much of it is a byproduct of the social arrangements themselves that put those people at increased risk. So what I would say is that the kind of the dramaturgy story that I write about in this BHM piece or the story of cholera or the recurring story about pandemics is some things that you'll find everywhere in the world, especially in COVID, right? Because COVID is so widespread, right? That the pattern I think plays itself out in repeated ways in Israel, in South Africa, in Delhi, across Europe and in the United States as well.
1: So if we're trying to compare pandemics, epidemics to each other, would these things change the pattern in some way? So I'm thinking here, for example, about uh, whether there's a difference between epidemic diseases, broadly speaking, and maybe non-epidemic diseases. Would we see a difference or would all of these health issues
2: kind of behave more or less similarly? It's important to understand that every epidemic, every microorganism has its own logic, right? So, and even the difference between Delta and Omicron, they reveal very different things about society because they move through society at their own pace, through their own mechanisms, airborne transmission, raising questions about masking masking becoming a symbol of issues of individual liberty right cholera was much more obviously a disease that spread by fecal oral means and so issues of public health ultimately revolved around sanitation public sanitation the closing of you know the broad street pump right and ensuring that you interrupt the flow of a microorganism and therefore the spread of disease. So it's not the case that, therefore, every pandemic will play itself out along these different social and political and economic lines, because each pandemic has its own logic, its own infiltration, you might say, into society. But it's unquestionable that if you had Omicron and you could replicate it Across time, every time it would reveal something about the society that's a slight, the the social differences in a slightly different way. It would reveal the specifics of whatever those social differences are at that time. We don't have the ability to do these, you know, retrospective historical tests, but I think that that would be the case. Can I ask
0: you then, you know. I think people recognized when it came to COVID early on, these disparities existed, you know, in different times, in different places, but relatively quickly, or at least they're asking the questions, why then do things not change? I mean, aside from a purely, you know, political expediency talking point, which would be an easy answer or a purely economic materialist answer to this. Are there deeper reasons why that people convince themselves of various logics, why certain groups get sick, certain groups
2: don't, um, and how that plays out as well? That's a really interesting question. You know, I think it's always tricky to generalize about people, (laughs) right? But one might say this, that, you know, from where I sit, it was pretty obvious that the differential vulnerability to COVID, especially early on, but still, is rooted in very specific social dynamics. For instance, people who are elderly, who live in multi-generational households early on, disproportionately affected, right? So one of the things about COVID that's really remarkable is that phenomenon of kids not being widely affected, at least in the first iteration, but the older you are, the worse it is. And therefore, if you're a grandparent living with your grandkids and your children in New York City, which was densely, it is densely populated. And if one of your kids was deemed as an essential worker and therefore more likely to be exposed in the period before masking and certainly the before the period of vaccination. And if you add something like, pre-existing conditions, like the way in which COVID takes advantage of people with diabetes or high blood pressure. So you were already multiply vulnerable. It doesn't take very much, you know, sociological sophistication to understand where the mortality resided and why it played out in the way that it did when you ask like why people don't see that it's that one it took a while to kind of figure that out it's a new phenomenon but also there's a tendency sometimes people to say to boil it all down to not all of those factors but oh it's just new york city right and if you were in i don't know a small town in utah or a rural county in montana You know, there is a narrative about New York (laughs) that you would likely have said, or New Jersey, and you would say, that's their problem. In fact, early on, right, there were some politicians who said, this is a blue state problem. It took a while for that narrative to subside. But to me, those are, you might say, examples of how the scripting of the meaning of COVID is connected to people's sort of political social and economic interests so to me that is the norm is for people to read the events through the lens of their own economic their political their geographical issues of identity you know who i am will shape what i think about covid as it appears in some other part of the world and that is why the who started moving away from naming variants after places because they understand the capacity of people to say, oh, that's the South African variant or that's the Indian variant, or that's the UK variant and how that feeds into people's response. So as silly as it is, calling it Alpha Delta Omicron and everything else is an effort to kind of get people psychologically beyond this zone where they read, and as a result, blame regions of the world for visiting this calamity on them. And of course, that's what our U.S. president was doing from the outset.
1: Yeah, and I have to say that this has been quite successful. I mean, the naming of the strains based on Greek letters rather than places or countries or whatever. But maybe a different question or follow-up question. Would you say that our society, broadly speaking, I mean, we can discuss American society, maybe. Would you say that our society, the groups in our society are too rigid, maybe, in our response? And I think you've been discussing the intellectual thinking. We can continue the discussion around rigidity in our intellectual responses, or we could maybe expand also to broader cultural and social practices. But my question is really about the rigidity. Mm -hmm. Would you
2: characterize our response as rigid overall? I think it's uh, quite varied, actually. It depends on where you go. I think, you know, if I were to be generous about the social response, regardless of whether I agree with the response or not, I would say that that COVID has been a learning experience for everyone. So in that sense, you know, I don't think it has been a rigid response. Everyone has figured out that they have to learn new things and they have to be flexible about it. Even if it is learning new things about like being anti-vax, right? In other words, the people who are anti-vax have learned a lot. They've learned how to mobilize public response to believe that vaccines are dangerous, incorrectly. So rigidity is less, I think, but I do think that people have figured out ways in which the new rituals, the new practices that COVID has made necessary, they have kind of learned them, practiced them, And it is hard to get people, if you become enamored of those practices, to relinquish it. I mean, I can tell you just from where I sit is, you know, I'm getting invitations to travel to give talks. And you could call it rigidity, but my approach has been okay, I have to wait to see a much more positive landscape of COVID before I'm willing to do that. Whereas there are other people who have said, you know, that's just squeamish, that is just too oversensitive. We have to get adjusted to living in this new world. As a result, we have to take risks. And by the way, you're double vaxxed and boosted. Like, what are you worried about, right? So I think we're all kind of trying to adjust to this changing landscape. And the science has also been constantly changing as well which has given us, I think, a lot to grapple with and introduced its own set of uncertainties. So one
0: thing I'm curious about, Keith, I mean, a lot of these points I think you've discussed today about disparities between groups, especially when it comes to race or socioeconomic status or on down the line, are well known of the last certainly 20, 30 years to historians, I would say. But perhaps less so to the broader public, if we can use that as a blanket term. How do you see those two things as being somewhat divided and that there's still a revelation early on during COVID that this would emerge when probably yourself looking at it right away, as you pointed out, you said, yeah, this is what's going to happen, right? It's pretty apparent based on a whole range of factors.
2: Well, I do think that the differences play out along the lines of region the demographics of different places so every society talks about differences in one way or the other in the northeast where you have you know cities where you were watching those differences play out it's a matter of both public commentary but also you know a necessary social response to talk about ethnic differences racial differences and differences in poverty and the approach to it. So in New Jersey, it has to be part of the public conversation if you're going to manage the pandemic, right? Uh, It does no one any good to pretend that it doesn't exist, these differences. In Montana or in places like Vermont or in parts of the country where those ethnic and racial differences are not as apparent, maybe they're different differences in terms of location, urban location, class that are more meaningful. So I can understand why in Billings, Montana, the conversation about race and mortality differences in COVID, not only is it distant, it's from their perspective irrelevant to the local phenomena that they're dealing with. And so the story of like race and ethnicity in America is the story that, you know, of course, race and ethnicity inform these kinds of differences, but people mean different things. If you go to the Southwest, you know, here's the amazing story of both the devastatingly high mortality rates among Native Americans, among indigenous people like Navajo, because at a time when people were being told to wash your hands frequently, when you have reservations without running water, what does this mean? How do people actually protect themselves? And at the same time, in the same Native American communities, once the vaccine came along, there was this sense that, well, the long-standing skepticism about the relationship between the federal government and Native American groups would mean resistance to vaccination. Quite the opposite has happened. Native Americans in the U.S. are the most vaccinated populations now. And at least one author wrote that the reason had to do with the history, not the history of mistrust, but the history of the knowledge of the devastation wrought by smallpox on Native Americans. So, you know, every region of the country understands social, racial Ethnic difference as being incredibly meaningful in the playing out of the pandemic. Yeah, and there's some parts of the country where it's not meaningful at all, partly because it doesn't reflect the local realities. Every part of the country has had this kind of conversation, but not precisely the same one. So then it somewhat, I
0: guess, begs the question is there an American experience to COVID, right? I mean, Is there a way to extrapolate some story that brings all this nuance of different regional places? I mean, the obvious public imagination about a pandemic is Lee's favorite movie, which is Contagion, in which, you know, everyone happily takes the vaccine in a correct lottery order. And basically, there's no discussion of race for all intents and purposes in the movie at all. I mean, barely of class of gender on down the line. So if something like that is what people apparently all rushed to watch for some crazy reason back in March. Is there any way to help that single message that comes out like that? Yeah,
2: what I would say is, you know, (laughs) we're back to scripts and we're back to dramaturgy, right? Because the desire to tell a unified story about the nation and the national identity that is devoid of regional differences the ethnic differences that actually make the country what it is i understand why it is that those national narratives regardless of the country us israel south africa greece india i understand why those narratives are desirable and appealing and meaningful, and why they are absolutely kind of necessary. But at the same time, they are not the narrative. And so from my perspective, the multiple stories that you see playing out around COVID are are the stories of the nation. And the story is the story of how it's playing out in Arizona relative to it's playing out in New Jersey. The story of, you know, California relative to Montana. And the fact that, you know, if you were ultimately historians like 50 years from now, there's probably going to be a historian writing a history of COVID in Montana. And I will probably be surprised if I'm around, which I won't be, right? But, but if I were able to read that story, let's say 10 years from now or 15 years from now, maybe I'll be around, right? I will probably learn something fundamentally new about not only how COVID played itself out, but what COVID produced in a state like Montana. And I'd probably be surprised at how different it is from the story I'm watching play out in New Jersey. I should say one last thing about this, which is that one of the things I've been doing historically is trying to collect information about the history of the vaccine as it's unfolding the vaccines plural as they are unfolding in the U.S. and internationally. It's a really incredibly difficult undertaking. But it's retrospectively, one might be able to tell an interesting story about COVID just through the lens of the history of vaccines, plural. No, I'm sure. And
1: that story would probably be even more interesting once we move out of the United States, or maybe even more broadly, the global north into the global south, which as far as I understand it, at least, is a completely different story that is simply not really heard of, at least not in, in the media I tend to consume. You're yeah. absolutely
2: right. So one theme, one chapter would be the story of what is often called these days vaccine diplomacy. You know, the kind of the way in which vaccines have become tools of outreach, and influence, but also with the recognition that what happens in South Africa, what happens in the developing world has direct health and public health implications for everywhere in the world. So that there's an element both of outreach, but also self-interest that's driving the story of vaccine diplomacy.
1: So before we wrap things up, I would, want to ask you to maybe reflect a bit over the past couple of years, uh, specifically about how COVID has influenced, maybe shaped the broader field of history of medicine. Now, I know that Merle and I, when we started this podcast, actually, we were kind of thinking that COVID is going to change things very significantly for history more broadly even. And I think that in retrospect, we were in We weren't really correct on that. I think we expected much more change than what we've seen, but what would be your take on this? And maybe specifically about history of medicine or maybe history more
2: broadly, if you prefer. What I would say is there are two ways to interpret the question. One is uh, how COVID changes the practice of doing the history of medicine, the questions, the themes, and the issues. The other is the way I would interpret it also is about how COVID has changed the relevance of the history of medicine and the reach of history of medicine. And you know, I'm in a position where in the American Association for History of Medicine, you're able to see the extraordinary demand for the insights of historians of medicine at this moment. So one of the things that I've said to our colleagues and our colleagues have said back to me is that there has been a kind of dramatic collision between the past and the present. One of my colleagues said that it's as if he has found himself living within the history books that he has written. In my view, it's the idea of having actually privileged insight because of a long-standing familiarity with epidemics and society a long-standing familiarity with the works of Charles Rosenberg with the dramaturgy of epidemics being able to therefore understand and uh to see where this narrative is and where it might be going so not being able to predict but being able to anticipate where and why the story will play out as it does. And so the other thing I would say is that the audience for that has grown dramatically. I mean, your your podcast is one example of that, but the number of venues that have asked historians of medicine to weigh in on these very questions are extraordinary. A year after the U.S. closed down, I ended up in a conversation with uh, National Public Radio reporter Audie Cornish, who wanted to ask me to reflect on the last year and what a historian has to say about the year's worth of the pandemic experience. And of course, of course, her next question was, and how will this play out? Right. So the idea that we're asking historians is, I think, one of the most significant developments out of COVID itself.
1: So yeah, I agree with everything you've said. But if we want to look at from a different perspective, maybe a good standard would be the job market, right? As far as I understand, at least, we haven't seen an uptick in hiring, broadly speaking. And as far as I understand, again, history of medicine or history of past diseases has not exploded in popularity in job searches. So how would you understand this? Is there going to be a lag or are
2: these things unrelated to each other? So it's funny, in my field, and I would call myself a historian of science, medicine, and technology, the job postings have been actually quite robust. So I've actually seen, I wouldn't say an uptick, but you know the forecast of there being difficult times ahead across the board haven't necessarily played themselves out. In the subfield, it's hard to predict exactly because the impact of COVID economically on universities is still playing itself out. That said, it has prompted me to propose a new course, which I teach at the intersection of history, but also in the School of Public and International Affairs. And in the fall of next year, I'll be teaching a course on planning for the post pandemic. And it's a history course about not just how pandemics affect societies, but how societies react, respond, and plan for post-pandemic life. And interestingly enough, the undergraduate college administrator at the School of Public and International Affairs said to me, well, you know, I could see this course being either A, very, very popular, or B, students will be totally sick of the pandemic and will want nothing to do with it. So this is yet another kind of uncertainty, you might say, about what what the future holds for the history of medicine and for me in particular in teaching this class.
0: I think that's a really good note to end on it. I will say I would love to take the course (laughs) and I'll be curious to know what happens regardless of who else signs up for it. I will let you know. So with that, thanks so much, Keith. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Thanks a lot, Keith. So I really enjoyed that interview, Lee, for a number of reasons. But the main reason I'll start with is really the discussion of scripts, acts, a play, a movie however you want to frame it, is, I think, a useful way to think about how history works writ large, to say a very straightforward statement, and I think shows the power in those words themselves that, you know, how humans make sense of the world is through stories. And I think, starting from the very beginning, you know, Keith's proposal of calling the various manifestations of COVID, we've gone through chapters rather than waves is a really powerful way of thinking in that same language.
1: Right. And I really took his point early on. Actually, it was before the actual interview, right? It was in the introductions part and just like thinking about how, how things are going on in each of our places. But I really took his idea of that it was and is useful to at least try to compartmentalize the pandemic so far. And he spoke about the third chapter. We could talk about stages as well. That's another term that has been used. And kind of during the conversation and a bit after the conversation as well, I've been thinking about this as well. How should we compartmentalize the story of COVID in a way that makes sense? And I agree that the waves. Don't actually tell the story, right? Looking at a graph and seeing an increase, a pretty visible increase, I have to say, and a decrease afterwards, it doesn't necessarily tell us much about the experience behind that. And as an example that I've reflected upon in the current wave, so to speak, is that I remember that, for example, during Delta or even before Delta, when Israel had, let's say, 5,000 infections per day, I felt something, right? I felt that going outside, I kind of need to take more precautions, be a bit more careful about who I meet and so on, maybe even very careful about who I meet. And over time, now that we have 70,000, I feel that the entire standard has changed and the standard has changed because time has moved on. We're at a different stage or a different part of this pandemic. So... Again, looking at the graph and seeing, okay, 10,000 cases per day means people felt this way, and 20,000 cases per day mean that people felt some other way doesn't actually reflect how I, at least, felt living through it. And maybe if I have to suggest my, my own division at this moment, at least, I'm really thinking about maybe three or four stages the first stage of uncertainty, which was not very long. Then we had a stage in which we were looking at masks as if masks were the answer or one of the answers, a significant answer. Then we moved on to looking at vaccines and discourse has shifted from the mask phase, so to speak, or the mask stage, so to speak, to vaccines. And I think at this point, in January, 2022, we're somewhere else, right? The vaccines are clearly not gonna solve this problem as easily as we hoped. And what's our solution now? Is it the herd immunity stage? I'm not sure.
0: Well, first I'll say there's no such thing as herd immunity because people are getting reinfected constantly with different variants and even with the same variant twice. So I would suggest not using that as the next stage. But what I'd also say that makes, I think, COVID different from pandemics in the past, and you know I'm not necessarily all hot to trot on the power of genetic evidence for history, but I think in this case, it actually does work because we do have a real-time sense of the differences in these different chapters of each one of these Greek letters, and that there are genetic differences and they have different clinical outcomes is pretty clear as opposed to you know the Justinianic plague or even the 1918 influenza where you know we can see that there's different peaks and troughs of how many people are getting sick but what we don't have are genetic differences that we can clinically say oh yes the third wave was clinically like this and thus people felt differently necessarily
1: So you're more into describing like maybe sub-pandemics or three or four different pandemics within the broader COVID umbrella pandemic so far?
0: Well, I think, you know, as Keith said, the science has been moving so fast that it can be difficult to understand. But I do think within each one of these major events, original COVID, Alpha, Delta, and Omicron, We do have a sense of scientifically that they're different from each other with different clinical outcomes, different spreads, these types of things. And I think these are known within a few months, at least. And so within a few months of each one of these, you and I have a different feeling over what we can and can't do. As you just described, with Omicron, you've basically arrived at a situation where you're basically like, look, we're all screwed. There's 70,000 cases a day what the hell am I supposed to do? Versus in Delta, you probably had internalized, this is worse, this spreads faster, but not so fast that it's insane. Just the thought.
1: Yeah, and that connects to another thing Keith mentioned, which is the learning. And there has been a significant learning curve that we all have been learning to react to the pandemic, react to the different COVIDs, I guess, uh, to use the chapters metaphor. But we've also learned a bit more about what to expect, uh, manage our risks, so to speak. And we've been learning that both based on our own experience, but also from the social cues of whatever is going on around us, right? So early on in, in original COVID, so to speak, lockdowns were lockdowns and people did not get out of their homes. Whereas today I think that is no longer really the case. and. We've learned, in a sense, not sure that the lesson has been a good lesson, but we clearly have learned.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very accurate way to put it. And original COVID is known as OG COVID, just so you know.
1: Okay, for you, it's going to be OG COVID, sure.
0: The other thing I think that Keith mentioned that's a big point that he made is not just this, we'll call it temporal difference between these chapters, but also the multi-regional story that as he's framed, it makes perhaps one story, and that the story of the US in COVID is that there are multi-regional outbreaks. And I think this has a lot of power to it. And I'll just give you one example. As you probably know, I track both Maryland and Oklahoma in terms of what's happening with various chapters of this. And it's very clear in Omicron that Maryland was hit first, more significantly, and now Oklahoma is
1: only being hit at the height of their wave basically right now. And that brings me to think about like this thought exercise. So let's say in whatever weird future development, much of the COVID evidence is kind of lost somehow. And some historian in the future gets the recordings of our podcast, right? So they listen to our podcast. They listen to the early segments we have. And they try to piece together what was COVID like over, let's say, the first two years of COVID. I wonder what they would come up with. I mean, I think it'll be very difficult to understand how the experience of COVID worldwide as a pandemic, worldwide pandemic, just based on our very localized experiences that we're sharing here. Well, I know one thing
0: the first group to emerge would definitely see it in a maximalist way. And then there would be people who would come along and reject that it's a massive catastrophe.
1: Yeah, I would probably point out that we we haven't died yet, so <laughs> Yeah. So I think with that reflection segment
0: wrapped up, Lee, I wanna ask you a small random question to conclude today. What are some of your daughter's favorite games to play these days?
1: You know, whether they're physical games or things she likes to do with you. So the smashing success of the past, let's say a week or two, I would say, is to tell her a story, just a made up story, usually about either herself or some other kid from her daycare and to draw that. And that is shocking to her. And right? just the, the ability of us to tell a story and create that story on a paper and she keeps on taking the same paper and pointing to it and say, tell me again, tell me again, tell me again. So I have to repeat the same story, pointing out the different scenes in the story. Now, Merle, I don't know if you know this, you probably don't actually, but my drawing skills are horrific, are really horrific. But uh, she still thinks it's good enough for her to understand. So,
0: Well, I'll just say, doesn't it just
1: prove that your kids will love you no matter what? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've been learning that. <laughs> uh, yeah, but so far it's all good. So far it's all good. What about your kids? Other than going to playgrounds, to, to the bug playground, which for whatever reason, I think it had the best name of the seven or so playgrounds you guys have around your house. Uh, so, what what do they like doing? So, my daughter, Ever the leader, leads
0: both her brother and other kids in school and a game they call baby cat in which my daughter pretends to be a baby cat. So she crawls around meowing (laughs) and assigns roles, mommy, cat, daddy, cat, you know, other baby cat to the other kids. And they all play this. Apparently this is what she tells us. And the teachers have told us. And for a long time, I tried to think, well, why, does she take the role of the baby cat, right? Why not the daddy cat or the mommy cat that are controlling the situation? (laughs) But I watched her play this with her cousin who was here over December break, who is a year older than her, approximately. And I realized if she plays baby cat, then she forces the ones she assigns to be daddy cat or mommy cat to take care of her. So essentially, she creates this game in which she basically becomes like the object of worship as the other kids like (laughs) take care of her as the baby.
1: So the idea in this game is to them to take care of her, just like play as if they're a family of cats. Yeah, and they crawl
0: around meowing. Again, I've only seen it with her cousin (laughs) and she convinced her older cousin, who's also just physically much bigger than her, to basically take care of her. As like part of this game, so I think that's why she plays the game. But every day when she comes home from school, I ask her, "Did you play cat today?" And she tells me who she played <laughs> cat with.
1: Okay. What about your son? Is he into playing baby cat as well, or yeah, is he he'll into play something f- else.
0: Yeah, he'll play from time to time. Right now, we or my wife, I should say, dressed him up as a superhero this morning when he was home with sunglasses and a cape, and so he runs around the house being a superhero.
1: <laughs> so he likes that right now. I have to say that scene is more standard than than baby cat. OK, so on this more positive note, I guess, of children playing some fun and maybe some questionably fun games, if we can wrap up this episode, we would like to thank our sponsors, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and Penn State University for funding the podcast a shout out to the new sponsor of Penn State University. And also, we'd like to thank the great team we have around us supporting us for, I don't know how many episodes at this point, our sound editor, Amitai Brelevy, and our webmaster, Vera Rekanath. Until
0: next time, stay safe, get vaccinated if you can, and let us know some fun games we can teach our children.